Take your Bibles, if you will, this morning and turn uh, to the book of Genesis. We are in part four of what will probably be a nine-part series, maybe more than that, depending on how windy I get as we get into it later. We are dealing with our third C, however, which is catastrophe. And we're going to be in the book of Genesis. We're going to start in chapter 6. So if you want to join me in Genesis chapter 6 here in a moment. As I was preparing for the sermon, I heard one commentator uh, speaking about the uh, economic condition of our country. And he got off onto a tirade about those who think that we should be fiscally conservative. And this is what he said. He goes, these are the same people who believe that global warming doesn't happen and that evolution never happened. And I thought, wow, I just got lumped into a group that I'm okay with. And yet I see the vile and the animosity towards me in that situation. As we come to this one today, as we begin to understand catastrophe, we recognize that much of the evolutionary thought falls down here, is destroyed by the flood. But also, we see a problem. The problem that we see is man's sin has increased so much that God must judge it immediately. And so we come before this passage with heavy hearts, but knowing that we serve a great and mighty God. Dr. Henry Morris says of Noah's Ark, to the majority of modern intellectual intellectuals, Noah is merely a legendary character. And his ark and its animals, nothing but a story for children's coloring books. That the entire account is sobering and important to history is a concept too naive even to consider, so they seem to think. I'm here to tell you today that the ark and the events that we're going to look at today are vitally important to our faith. Because it is here where God institutes another means for the people that would follow him to understand who God is. And not only that, that they would understand the one way to heaven. And so the ark is vitally important. I hope that you've never isolated the ark into something that is just children's stories. Because the truth of the matter is that the information we're going to find here is not is anything but children. It is anything but Sunday school. It is very, very serious. And it is something that you and I should take to heart. The idea that I want us to focus on this morning is this. Man's kind, or man, mankind's sin led to catastrophe. Yet, in the midst of it, God still reveals His perfect plan of redemption. And so as we recognize whose fault it was for the catastrophe, we also recognize that through God's incredible grace and His incredible mercy, that He has allowed it to reveal His plan of redemption. And it is still intact. It wasn't destroyed by the sin. It wasn't destroyed back in the garden. It is intact. And it is something that you and I believe in. We must place our faith in because that is the only way to spend eternity with our God in heaven. And so as we begin to move into this passage this morning, I want us to go before our Lord. We're going to skim three or four chapters here, and so we're going to be moving through the book of Genesis and get ready for that. So let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the opportunity that we have to study your word today. As we consider our world around us and the vile and the anger that is directed towards us because we do not believe in global warming and we do not believe in evolution, we recognize that many of them are lost beyond, uh, beyond reach, but many of them are only lost to the point that they do not understand. And so I pray that we would be able to be bold about sharing our faith with them, that we would be able to reach them in a special way. I also pray for those that I have met this past week that have questions concerning creation, 
And I'm excited that they are asking these questions. They know that it's not right. And I pray that your spirit would be working in their hearts, that they would come to know you as Savior. I pray for us now as we look into this passage. Guide us and direct us. Help us to understand these few chapters well, uh, knowing that we have much more to study as we move into this passage later in our Sunday evening series, but also that we have much to glean and that we have much to learn. Lord, I pray that we would learn about your character and that we would learn more about man's sinful nature and that we would be willing to give you the glory and the honor that you rightly deserve and must be granted to you. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it now. In your son's name we pray. Amen. We are into our third of eight C's of biblical history. By the time we're done, we're going to have moved from creation, moving into corruption, into catastrophe, into confusion, into covenant. We're going to move into the New Testament, and we're going to deal with Christ, the cross, and the consummation. In other words, when we get to spend eternity with Him in heaven. Those are our eight C's. We're in the third of those. And this morning, uh, we have moved through a perfect creation that was stained by man's corruptness. And now we move into the realization that this corruption that started back as Adam and Eve sinned has led to the catastrophe we study this morning. I want to remind you that our overall objective in our journey through the eight seas is this, that the church and the individual is to make disciples. Your job as a believer is to reach out to those who do not know Christ as Savior, to share the gospel with them and make them disciples. Your job as a believer is then to take those disciples and train them to teach them all that God, all that Christ has commanded us. That is your job. It is the church's job. And we must fulfill it together. And so as we move through this passage, I desire that through this study and the others, your ability to fulfill that objective is emboldened. I am amazed at how many open doors I have faced this week in sharing the creation and then being able to move to Christ. It is astounding how many people have questions and want to know the truth. One lady said uh, that she knew the Bible to be true, but she always had questions about these things. I thought, man, what an incredible open door. And so we have the opportunity to be able to reach out to them, and we must be emboldened to do so. This morning we pick up where we left off last week of sorts as we examine sin's self-destruction. Sin's self-destruction. We're going to look at what sin does. Because we live in a world that thinks that sin is okay. That it's alright that we continue in sin. We know that there may be some among us who believe that sin is okay. Because everyone is doing it. And yet I want you to see sin's self-destructive nature. Sin left to itself will only self-destruct. And so I wanted us to see that. But then I also want us to recognize that out of that sin self-destruction that Noah is commanded by God. Noah is pulled out. He is the only one. Out of all, of all of those who are on the earth, who inhabit the earth, he is the only one that God says, I'm going to call you out. Because Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we're going to look at Noah and we're going to look at the task. And it was a radical task that he was asked to do. After 120 years, after Noah had been called to perform this radical task, judgment finally arrives. Judgment finally arrives. But even in the midst of judgment, we see God's incredible patience God's incredible mercy, yet He is still God and He does all that is promised. He is a just God, He is a righteous God, and those things will take place. Justice and righteousness will rule. Yet we recognize that God is patient and merciful as well. So we begin in Genesis chapter 6, 
verses 5 through 8. And let me read the scripture there for you. Verses 5 through 8. Genesis chapter 6, and the scripture says, And the Lord saw the wickedness of men was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, as we look at sin's self-destruction, we need to consider how sin is spread. And we recognize that this is a short amount of time. By the time of the flood, when Noah enters into the ark, he is 600 years old. When we do the math all the way back down to day one of creation, we recognize that 1,500 years have passed. So 1,500 years from Adam to Noah have passed. In that short time, Man has become so corrupt that notice what God says about them. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the, heart, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see some of the key words in there that I want you to notice? Every, only, and continually. Let's look at some of them. These words, every. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Continually. Now, can you imagine God, as He is looking through every thought, every uh, idea that ever popped in the head of man, and He's going, the intent of their thoughts is evil. So you and I must understand something about sin. At what point do you sin? Is it when the thought pops into your head? No. It's what you do the very next step that could be considered sin. Jesus said that if you lust in your heart after a woman, you've committed adultery with her already. Do you see where Jesus drew the line? Jesus drew the line at the intent of the thought. So you can stand and you can say, I've had this thought, now what am I going to do with it? If I'm going to allow it to be processed into sin, that you know what, I could do that and get away with that at that moment you've sinned. If you say, you know what, if I follow that way, that's sin, I'm not going to do that, now you have... Pursued the path of righteousness. So is it important to capture our thoughts? Absolutely. Because if we can reign in our thoughts, we can reign in our sin life. But notice what is going on here with these people. It says, every intent of their thought was only evil continually. Is God trying to make a point? A thought pops into their head. And the next step is a, that's a good idea. And so there they go. And they're right down on the sin. Every time that happened, it was in the pursuit of evil. They were, every intent of their thought, of their hearts, was only evil. The amazing fact is that Adam had only been dead a few hundred years before the flood. I said there's 1,500 years. Adam had lived up for 900 plus years. So Adam had only been gone for less than 600 years. In fact, a man that died the same year as the flood, Methuselah, likely walked with Adam for more than 200 years. So Methuselah is walking with Adam. He knows all about these things. He was a godly man. He was walking with Adam. Adam would have instructed him, no doubt. And yet, as Methuselah comes to the end of his life, the world is so corrupt that every thought of every intention was evil only. This is terrible. 
Adam hasn't even been dead very long. Methuselah walked with him. In fact, many of the parents of those who were now on the face of the earth had walked with Adam. They had known Adam. They were all Adam's children, and so they would have known Adam. Nevertheless, despite Adam saying, don't do it. I was there in the garden. It was perfect. It was everything that we were created for. It was there. Don't continue in sin. I've seen what it's doing. Can you imagine the grief in Adam's heart when he passed away? As he saw his children committing murder. As he saw his children's children continuing in war. Fighting and bickering among themselves. Every thought, every intent of their thought was evil. But sin, so rampant, so destruction, that there was not even a good intention. We learn something of our Lord here in this passage. Because look at verse 6. It said the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and He was grieved in His heart. Sin causes deep pain to our Lord. The word for sorry or in some translations repent means that sin caused a state of sorrow in our Lord. He was sorrowful that man was committing sin on the earth. Now I want you to think about this in relationship to your own life. I want to pull some personal application. Today, you have a thought that pops into your head and you say, you know what, it might be fun to act upon that, but you never do act upon that. Did you know that that point grieves our Lord? Causes Him to be in a state of sorrow. He says it twice in this passage. He's sorry that He made man on the earth twice. He's sorrowful about it. But then, in this passage, we recognize that He is grieving. That He is is broken. We tend to think lightly of sin. After all, everyone's doing it. Everyone's sinning, so we tend to think lightly about it. Yet to God, it is vile, it is despicable, and it causes incredible sorrow. You see, you and I should have the mind of God in regards to sin. If you know Jesus Christ, if you can call yourself a Christian, you are to be Christ-like. You ought to have the same mind as God has in relationship to sin. And yet you and I tend to think of sin as lightly. But it grieved the heart of God. Even though the Father doesn't have a physical body, we can understand the pain and the sorrow. We understand what the writer is doing. He's helping us to identify because God is grieved in the heart. If you're a parent of an older child, whether they've moved out, maybe they're a teenager, maybe, maybe they're just, uh, they've been gone for a long time from your home. A parent can be grieved in their heart when they see a child choose a life path that leads them into further sin and continued alienation to the family and to the church. We know full well the emotions of loss, sadness, grief, heartache, and disappointment. We know that full well. And yet these are the emotions that our Lord is feeling because of the sin that is on the earth, both then and today. You see, God's heart didn't change when He caused the flood. He's like, all right, I can live with sin now. No, it's the same as it was then. And we recognize then that... Oops. That's supposed to come up in a second. Hang on, I'll come back to it. But sin brings judgment. Sin brings judgment. Verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
Consider the progression. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord saw. Look at verse 6. The Lord was sorry. Verse 7, the Lord said. You see, God will deal with sin. He will deal with it completely and in finality, and it will be over. After 1,500 years, the Lord had exercised mercy, and now it came time to judge sin. It is easy to blame God for sin, but as considered this last week, that is not where the blame lies. When we looked at it last week, when we looked at corruption last week, who, who holds the blame for sin? We do. You and I hold the blame for sin. It was our fault. We hold the blame for why cancer is rampant in our world. We hold the blame why sickness and death and persecution. We hold that blame because we're all sinners. But as considered this last week, it's not that we should blame God. But that's where we blame God. It is just as easy then to see God as vengeful and angry. Well, God, if God were truly a loving God, He wouldn't allow uh, the flood to come. That's a, that's a question you're going to hear. At the risk of jumping ahead, I want us to really consider this as it fits in with our overall purpose in the series. For 1,500 years, sin has reigned. Every intent of every thought is only evil continually. Despite the pleas, which were now no doubt cried out by Adam, man still allows sin to rule in their members. Now there's only one servant who is found faithful. This servant is about to spend 120 years preaching without a single convert. They all go into the ark. The door is open for seven days, and no doubt Noah is continuing to preach. The time has come. Seven days is all I've got. Get into the ark now. Not a single convert. No one climbs the ramp to join Noah and his family. I want you to decide. Is God just, merciful, compassionate, loving, kind, and tender? Or is He wrathful, angry, and vengeful? When you consider the parallels, think about it. God waits for 1,500 years He's got an ark going up that's four and a half stories tall, that's 450 feet long. I mean, this is massive. And he's 120 years, Noah's working on it, Noah's preaching, and the people laugh and mock at him. And yet, all the animals file in. And all of Noah's family goes in. And there's silence. The hammering is stopped. The door is still open. Noah comes out and he preaches again. He says, I've got seven days. No one climbs that ramp. And the door closes. Is our God a tender God? Absolutely. Did the people get what they wanted? Absolutely. They didn't want to join Noah on the ark. Now their minds changed quickly. They didn't want to join Noah on the ark. But I want us to look at Noah, because Noah is found as faithful. Only one man stood out from the rest. Verse 8, only one man stood out. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, in the great hall of faith chapter, only Noah's description begins and ends with the phrase, by faith. What a powerful statement about Noah. By faith. By faith. 
So Noah is the only one that's found faithful. I'm going to build on that here in just a moment. But Noah is commanded by God to build an ark. Look at verses 13 through 16. We have a radical command. Verses 13 through 16. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, and the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length, in the, ark, uh, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it with, uh, and finish it to a cubit from the top and set a door in the ark on the side of it and you shall make it with the lower, second, and third decks. You see, here we have a radical command. And I want you to set up, I want to set up the scenario for you. It has never rained. 1500 years. Not a drop has rained. It's misted, but it's never rained. They are not near an ocean or any water large enough to carry a ship. And yet God commanded Noah to build an ark, which by conservative numbers was 450 feet long, 45 feet high, and 75 feet wide. Let me... Yeah, it didn't come up there. Let me go back to, the, to this one. I want to show you this. I want to show you Noah's ark compared to a 747. Noah's ark was huge. Now I want to put that up against the Titanic. And it's nearly, it's more than half as long as the Titanic. As we begin to understand the size and the immensity of Noah's ark, we begin to understand that God has given Noah a radical command. It was a radical command. You see, as we consider the ark, we recognize that by modern scientific standards, the ark is the absolute perfect design for a ship. It's nearly impossible to turn over. It comes right up to the limit of what we can do even today with shipbuilding, with wood. And so we recognize that the ark was exactly what God intended it to be. It is widely accepted that every animal brought in by twos, that is, by, there were two sets of pairs, and every clean animal by seven sets of pairs would have fit onto one level of the ark leaving the second level for provisions and the third level for people. Now I want you to see a specific number here. You may not be able to see it. The capacity of Noah's Ark was 522 railroad stock cars or 125,280 sheep-sized animals. The average, anim- average size of an animal is the size of a sheep. And if you recognize that, there would be 125,280 animals that could have fit onto the Ark. If there are that many animals that could have fit onto the ark, how many people could have fit onto the ark? And yet, how many people went on? Only eight. But this is a radical step of faith. A radical step of faith. Look at the redemption story now. As we move into uh, what God is doing, verse 16, I want you just to see verse 16. And you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. And you shall make it with a lower second and third decks. I want you to look at just one phrase and make the door in the side of it. Now see, that wouldn't meet any OSHA requirements today. You have to have an entrance and an exit on every floor. You have to have fire escape and all this stuff. There was only one door. Why was there only one door? Here we have the redemption plan of our God. There's only one way in. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one can come to the Father but through me. There's only one door. 
the most amazing part of the ark in its size and its immensity is the number of doors. There was only one. You couldn't get into the ark by beating on its side. You could only enter into the door. Today, judgment is coming again. And as with the ark, there is only one door. You cannot enter into the safety and the protection from the judgment any other way but through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the ark gives us the example of the coming Redeemer. There are a lot of critics who said to Noah, it won't truly rain. 1,500 years, it's never rained a drop. You had your environmentalists in that day, I'm sure, who saying, come on. That kind of climate change, I don't think is going to happen. Yet, when the time passed and the door was shut, it was shut for good. How dare you as a sinner declare God to be unjust when the door closes? In fact, you will not. If you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, you won't dare tell it to Him. You won't dare say it to His face. Because when your opportunity comes, do you know what you're going to do? You're going to fall on your knees and you're going to say, you are indeed truly God. We know that to be true. We know that that's what's going to happen. And yet many of these critics say today, oh, come on, Jesus isn't truly going to come again. Oh, come on, you can't expect to go to heaven. Come on, there's not even a heaven. There's not even a God. And yet one day will they not only declare there to be a God, but they will declare him to be just. And now the door is closed and the judgment begins. Look down to verses 17 through 22. Genesis chapter 6. It says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh which has the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, and every creeping thing after the gra- of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you and to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourselves some of all of the food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. You see, God accomplishes what he starts. In two ways we see this accomplished. In one way, in mercy, and in the other way, in judgment. In judgment, God brings the flood which man said was impossible, both in their continued sinful actions as well as in their thoughts. Recently, I was watching, uh, they're, they're about to explore, they're giving it to private citizens to explore the depths of the ocean. And it was stated that if you took Mount Everest and took it into the deepest parts of the, the water in the ocean and sunk it, that there would be 7,000 feet of water above it in our ocean. God said, I'm going to bring a flood, and I'm going to cover the whole earth. Did God do it? Absolutely. I want you to consider this in light of what I said, in light of what the world thinks about Noah's Ark. Oh, it's just a child story. Is it a child story that millions of dead things died, were buried in rock layers? Is it a child story that all was killed except for what God spared on the Ark? See, this, this sounds like a, a horror, not a child story. We must recognize God's dealing with sin. We must not belittle it. God dealt with sin finally and is about in, in this situation and is about to deal with it completely and forever. 
as He already did on the cross and it's about to take place. You see, God brings the flood, which man said was impossible. Those things that are impossible with men are possible with God. But God also demonstrates His mercy because He protects Noah, His family, and all of the animals that breathed air and lived on land. The design given to Noah was exactly the right design. Tested today, it comes to the upper limit of wood chips, and it is nearly impossible to roll. Yet God truly established His covenant with Noah, who never had any idea of how to build a ship. But God also demonstrates His mercy in another way. We delved into this a little bit this morning in Sunday school. If God just said, you know what, I'm done. I don't want to deal with it anymore. I'm going to destroy all life. And I'm going to start all the way over. Adam and Eve wouldn't have been able to be redeemed. Enoch, who walked with God and then was not, could not have been redeemed. You see, if the earth was ended then, God's redemptive plan hadn't ended. And these people wouldn't have had a way to spend eternity with Him in heaven. Yet God's mercy is so great that He wishes none to perish. And so in that instance, God reveals that by saving mankind, He still had work for mankind to do. And the work that He had to do was actually for man's benefit. You see, God has truly established His covenant with Noah. But I want to look as this judgment begins, I want you to recognize that it has finally arrived And we turn to chapter 7 for this. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to begin. Because Noah alone is found faithful. Verses 1 through 5, Then then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all of the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Uh, By the way, that verse 5 is a repeat of verse 22 of the last chapter. And it's repeated often. Noah did all that God commanded him to do. What a wonderful statement. I hope that is said of every single one of you, that you did all that God had commanded you to do. But it is said of Noah... After this massive four-and-a-half-story ship is built, 120 years of saws, hammers, provisions collected, animals entering in the ark, no converts. It is time to take everything into the ark. And everything is into the ark. Uh, at the end of, verse si- of chapter 6, everything is there. God says, okay, now I want you to know this. You've got seven more days. And then I'm going to bring the water. Seven more days and the rain would begin. But as we look at this and we see Noah's faithfulness, it reminded me of 2 Chronicles. Turn over to 2 Chronicles briefly with me. 2 Chronicles chapter 2, or rather chapter 16, verse 9. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. Scripture says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that He may strongly support those whose heart is his uh, is completely his you have acted foolishly in this way indeed from now on you, you will surely have wars you see i want to give you some of the context the context is we have asa and asa it started out in his reign was a godly king and he was doing godly things and because of that he was winning wars and he was winning battles and he was greatly feared 
Then towards the end of his life, we have uh, Hananiah come to him. And Hananiah the prophet comes to him and says, uh, Asa, you're not doing what's right anymore. You're not following after God. God's looking for those who serve Him and are completely His. And you're not anymore. And because of that, you're going to have wars. It is because of this statement that Asa takes Hananiah and throws him into prison. But I want you to understand this in relationship to Noah's day. You see, because Noah's day is also judgment. In Asa's situation, it was judgment. So we have a a similar context. When God looks, He studies the intentions of every thought. He looks into the heart and He questions, Are you truly mine? And if you're truly His, He protects and He guides and He strengthens. So I want to ask you a question. If you take sin lightly, because everybody's sinning, everybody's doing it. So you take sin lightly and you engage in sin and you allow sin to take captive your thoughts. Is God offended by that? Yeah. So when it comes time for God to search to and fro, to see those who are truly His, even if you're a believer, you're going to lose heavenly rewards, and you're going to lose earthly benefits. Noah, after God searches after God watches for those that are truly His, find support in the time of a needed deliverance. But for those who are truly not His, there was no such support. No doubt, the door closes, the first raindrop falls, and hits the earth. And I can imagine the crowds that are standing outside the ark all looking up, going, what was that? Then another one falls. And then another one falls. And then the the deluge comes in and it covers them with rain and they're soaking wet. I think it dawned on them at that point. What do you suppose they did? Imagine they ran to the ark and started beating on the side of the ark. Wanting in. But not allowed in then they would have climbed to the highest places where they would have perished and died. Our Lord is watching for those who truly are His, and He will support those who are His in times of needed deliverance. But I want you to notice something, because something really stood out to me. Notice the calculated detail. Verses 6 through 13. Verse 6 through 13, it says, Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his, and his wife and his sons' wives with them entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, in the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were open, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered into the ark. Notice the calculated detail. We have incredible detail about this. And it should be stunning to, ha- to us how much detailed information is actually given 
to the start of the flood, how long it lasted, and how long it took to dry up. You see, everything was completed on the very same day that the rain fell. You see, God said to Noah, take all the animals in. you got seven days. Noah, no doubt, was standing on the platform preaching to the crowds and said, I've only got seven more days. Listen to me. We must repent. Come in. There's room. I've got the provisions for you. Everything you need is going to be here. And God said, okay, seven days are over, Noah. Go inside. And God shuts the door. I can imagine the silence as that door thudded closed. And then it started to rain. Everything was completed on the exact moment it was supposed to be completed. And we have that incredible detail. Depending on which calendar was used, because there's a couple different calendars that it could be, the flood was either in the late spring or late fall. But either way, it doesn't matter much, other than we understand that the catastrophe was never out of God's control, nor was it ever beyond His abilities. You see, one of the things that stands out to me about the calculated detail is everything was as God said it would be. Yeah, there's mass panic, there's chaos on the earth, but God knew exactly what was going to happen. He had it all laid out. It wasn't ever beyond His control. I'm sure you had people saying, God, why are you doing this to me? But it was never beyond His control. I'm sure Noah and his family would have opened the door had they been given the chance as they heard people beating on the outside. But it was never out of God's control. As a result, I want us to understand this. That sin is never out of God's control. No matter how bad it has gotten, it will be finally dealt with. Christ on the cross was the payment needed for everybody, if they will just truly believe. It's never been out of His control. And in fact, I want to prove it to you. Look at God's provision. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. And the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth. In the end... Of the 150 days, the water decreased. In the 17th month, on the seventh, on the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month, on the 10th, uh, until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and he sent out a raven and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Now skip over to verse 13. Now it came about in the 600th and first year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. You see, with the very same precision and detail given at the start of the flood, its ending too is recorded. In fact, it's recorded exactly to the day Noah said, I was 601 year and one day old. One month and one day old. And I stepped out onto dry ground. After destroying all life except for those on the ark, God kept His covenant and the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. According to verse 13, Noah is now 601 years old and he emerges from the ark and with him all the animals that 
he had taken with him for the journey. Now, a few things I want us to take from the ark. A few things I want you to glean and hold on to as we prepare to go into the rest of the seas. And it is this. Every time a fossil is found, we remember that man's sin increased so great that that animal died in the flood, which was judgment for man's sin. You see, the the world digs up a fossil and they go, oh, millions of years ago this thing died, it was laid down, it was buried, and here it is. No, the creationist says, no, no, this animal was killed in the flood about 4,000 years ago, about 4,500 years ago. Was killed in the flood, was buried. And when we dig up a fossil, it reminds us of the penalty of sin. Second, we should never take sin lightly just because everyone's doing it. God doesn't take it lightly. It grieves Him for us to sin. Third, and this ties in with second, God will deal with sin. God will deal with it. You see, God won't remain grieved forever. God will deal with it. There is only one door that leads to salvation. Only through Jesus Christ are we saved. Fourth, we should preach like Noah preached on the first of the seven days. We have no idea how much time we have left. God hasn't told us, well, when you get the ark done, you'll have seven more days. All we know is that it's the end times. We're almost there. We're living in the last days. The time is short. The message will be rejected, but we still must preach. And we must preach with fervency And we must preach with passion, just as Noah did on the first of the seven days. The time is up. Let's proclaim the gospel. Let's tell them there's one door. All you got to do is come up the ramp and come in. I've got everything that you need. And the only way that we'll preach that way is when we understand the penalty of sin is death. And that God will not be mocked. Death will come. Because God is righteous and God is just. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, as we have looked at this third sea catastrophe, Lord, I repent of any time that I have made Noah's Ark just a childhood story. Because we recognize that it is a grim event that has happened in the history of men because of man. Lord, I pray that you would guide us and direct us in understanding the weight and the penalty of sin, that we would be found faithful before you. I praise you for the ministries that have been used of you to get this uh, as forethought in our minds. And I praise you for your word, because it is what guides us and directs us. Lord, drive us to our knees when we take sin lightly. Help us to preach like Noah did. In the last seven days, we know that there may not be any converts, but our job is to preach. Our job is to to share the message. I pray that you'd bless us and encourage us today as we go out. Let us use the creation, the corruption, and the catastrophe as we share the gospel with those that we come in contact this week. May it be a good week. May we see fruit from it. And may your name be glorified. In your son's name we pray. Amen.